Hello and welcome to The Check-In at KBIA. Thank you for being here for community connection and conversation over the airwaves. We are glad that you're here. In a crisis like the coronavirus crisis right now, it's more important than ever to get good, accurate information. We need information from local and national government officials and health officials. We need accurate, reasoned information from the media. And we need all of this while many things are unknown or changing quickly, whether it's what we know about the virus itself, who qualifies for testing, government recommendations about social distancing or wearing masks in public. It can be hard to keep up. It can also be very hard to tell what's true from what's fake. So in this time of uncertainty and so many news feeds where it's hard to tell fact from fiction, how well are government leaders and public health officials doing at following the facts and keeping people safe? And how do we cut through it all and find actionable guidance during this time of uncertainty? Today's guest studies and teaches communication during crisis. Professor Brian Houston teaches an MU's communications program and co-directs the university's Disaster and Community Crisis Center. Brian Houston will join us very shortly. shortly. You also can join our discussion with where do you turn to right now for information? Do you trust the official reports at the national and local level? Do you trust media reports? Are you tuning in to government briefings on Facebook Live and elsewhere and getting the information you need? Maybe social media is your source. Let us know how you're getting information during the crisis and what you'd like to maybe see more of. You can join us for this discussion with Brian Houston during the next half hour. We'd love to have you join our discussion. Before we get to all of that, unpacking of crisis communications, let's check in with KBIA health reporter Sebastian Martinez-Valdivia. Sebastian has continued to exhaustively cover things as they unfold with the coronavirus crisis in Boone County and in mid-Missouri. Welcome, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Sebastian, uh, what discrepancies have you found between the state and county's numbers? A lot of what you've been doing is keeping track of the numbers as they are reported. Um, what are you? How are you keeping track of those when sometimes they don't match state and county numbers? Yeah, it's it's tricky. As the number of tests goes up, you have a lot more private laboratories coming into the mix. Where originally, very early on, it was just the state laboratory. So you have a lot more numbers coming in from a lot of different directions. And so sometimes you run into wrinkles, I guess. Um, and so one thing that I'd noticed at the end of last week um, was that uh, Columbia Boone County um, Health and Human Services was reporting um, no new cases over the span of 24 hours. And that happened twice last week where they reported that. Um, but if you look at the state's numbers for Boone County, you saw that both of those times the state's numbers increased for Boone County. And so I was trying to figure out what was going on there. I reached out uh, to the health department and yesterday uh, they informed me that when the state initially gets um, numbers, if it doesn't have a patient address on file for that person who's tested positive, uh, it defaults essentially to just putting it at the, um, in the county of whatever lab ran the test. So we have a lab here in Columbia that has run a significant amount of tests. It's made up um, as of last week, almost a quarter of the tests um, that private labs have done here in Missouri. Um, and so it's possible that some of the numbers that the state is reporting for Boone County are just cases where it hasn't been able to pin down an address for the person um, who uh, tested positive. So that, uh, according to the health department, is why the state's numbers were higher for Boone County than the county's own numbers. Um, but as you see these numbers continue to go up, 
it, it is a little harder to keep track of. Um, and I, I expect there's probably more wrinkles like this popping up in other places as well. Okay, Sebastian, a really difficult question. And let me say, by the way, we're talking to Sebastian Martinez Valdivia, KBIA's health reporter. Uh, Sebastian has been covering the numbers, the rise in uh, known cases as they're documented and really kind of sorting through a lot of this in his coverage, which you can see also at KBIA.org. But you can also just join our conversation now. Um, Sebastian, I kind of have a big picture question for you when it comes to the numbers. There have been predictions and with uh, responsible news organizations like NPR saying that predictions are very, very hard right now, um, but also giving helpful sort of state-by-state predictions. Um, I'm just curious what you, as someone who's really been covering this on the front lines in Missouri, it might be kind of hard to look at the national aerial view, but um, it looks like Missouri's curve compared to a lot of states is a little bit flatter. Can you give us a sense of where you think Missouri is falling when it comes to how we're going to fare when we're scheduled to peak and what the numbers of uh, fatalities might look like um, for us at that point as the predictions, which is an imperfect science, but as those predictions are predicting right now? Yeah, so like you said, those predictions are, are shifting pretty constantly, and it tends to be in response to policies um, that different jurisdictions are enacting in terms of social distancing and enforcing that. Uh, and so with Missouri on Friday, um, the, the governor announced a new stay-at-home order. Um, and you'll probably talk about this a little more with Professor Houston in a little bit. Um, but essentially, now that's being reported out in national outlets uh, as Missouri is now under a stay-at-home order. But if you actually look at the letter of the order, um, you'll start noticing differences with other states' stay-at-home orders. Uh, and in a lot of ways, the governor's most recent order is reiterating a lot of things that he had previously said in previous orders. It's a lot of recommendations. It's a lot of suggestions um, that Missourians avoid uh, doing specific things. Uh, but when it comes to actual enforcement, he's delegated it to counties, which were already enacting stay-at-home orders on their own um, that have a little more teeth in them. So when it comes to predicting, um, you know, when our curve might flatten, uh, when our curve might peak, um, it's a lot of the time in, in response to those policies. And so it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to, to really say definitively because it might change from one day to the next. Yes, you're right. So it depends on what officials and what communities do. And that is very much, you're right, what we are talking to Brian Houston about um, during this half hour. Um, what do government officials do to respond? What are the stay-at-home orders that they're laying down? Um, how well are we following them? All of those um, really um, uh, kind of variables feed into uh, what is likely to happen here in Missouri. Um, again, this is uh, KBIA's daily check-in. We're talking right now with KBIA health reporter Sebastian Martinez Valdivia, um, who's following the numbers. Sebastian, one more question for you. You uh, mentioned the stay-at-home order. Um, how are non-essential businesses handling this new stay-at-home order? Yeah, so in the actual order, the restrictions on non-essential businesses are essentially that they can't have more than 10 people in, a, in one space, and the people in that space need to be six feet apart. Um, there's waivers that businesses can apply for, um, for, you know, to not have those restrictions applied to their business. Um, and so I reached out to the Department of Economic Development, which is managing those waiver applications, and they said that since Friday when the order was announced, they'd received 45 applications. Of those 45 applications, 41 were deemed unnecessary. They didn't need 
a waiver to begin with because they were actually already meeting those restrictions. Uh, another one withdrew, and then the three that were rejected um, were rejected because they were de deemed non-essential and there was no way of conducting their business meeting those requirements. So it was a tattoo parlor, it was a pool hall, and it was a hair salon. Um, and mm -hmm. so obviously with hair salon, you can't necessarily have people six feet apart from each other unless you get some very long scissors. Uh, and so those were rejected. But for the most part, again, this is up to counties to enforce. And so I, it depends on what different counties are doing. Here in Boone County, it's complaint-based. So if somebody sees a, a business that is non-essential and is violating the stay-at-home order, they can complain to the health department, which can then investigate. Um, but that differs from county to county, and the governor has completely left it in the county's hands in terms of actually enforcing that. Um, and so I expect that you're seeing very different things from county to county, depending on um, what their health department is doing in response to that. Okay. Uh, anything to add, Sebastian, that we haven't covered here that you think that our listeners should keep in mind? Um, I think that one, one thing to, to, to look into um, and to probably start taking seriously is the use of masks. Um, that's something that's been discussed more and more since the CDC issued those guidelines. Um, we've seen differing responses from state leaders in terms of whether they personally will be using masks, but health professionals tend to agree um, that it's a good idea um, if not for preventing transmission of the virus directly in terms of you, you know, breathing out or, or coughing out um, particles. Um, if nothing else, it, it's good for preventing you touching your face potentially. It can train you to stop touching your face, which is a vector for transmission. Um, but, but that's something that uh, I, I think people should start looking at um, okay. pretty seriously. Interesting. Okay. And I, what I've read is that if you are going to use them, just make sure you're using them very carefully and properly, right? When you remove right, them. Right. Not adjusting them too yes. much or, or fiddling with them because then you can actually do the opposite and touch your face more. All right. Well, we'll continue all of these conversations. Uh, Sebastian Martinez Valdivia, thank you for all you're doing and thanks for uh, coming on to talk with us. Happy to be here. Okay. Take care. All right, uh, so back to the topic for the day today, crisis communications, how government, health officials, media, and all of us citizens relay, rely on information and relay information both. During a disaster, we're going to be talking with Brian Houston. You also can join us. Uh, where are you getting your information these days? Do you trust media reports? Do you trust the, li the Facebook Live uh, gatherings from public officials? Um, all seem very helpful in many ways, but not of all of it is that's out there in the information landscape. So we're going to sort through a little bit of that, but we'd love for you to join our conversation with your question or your comment. Uh, Professor Brian Houston, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Janet. So you research crisis communications, but also uh, you research community resilience, which is kind of an interesting topic. Um, in, view, in your view, uh, Brian, why don't we start with just finding out what are you observing as you're watching all of this unfold? Um, how is our community responding here in mid-Missouri as well? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I think that overall um, I'm really quite impressed frankly, with how well people are doing. Um, you know, we tend to, uh, if we have an interest in public health and we have an interest in public safety, we sometimes tend to have a focus on um, people that aren't complying or aren't doing what they need to be doing, and we kind of get sort of hyper-focused on that. Mm -hmm. but, but really, it seems kind of amazing that so many people uh, in Columbia, Missouri, across the state, across the United States, across the world, right, are really taking social distancing seriously, mm -hmm. um, are doing many of the things that we need to be doing to sort of flatten the curve. So 
I mean, I can talk at length about where challenges remain and what issues are still out there. But overall, I think it's, you know, quite impressive how much everyone is really kind of um, helping out with this cause and recognizing that we're all part of the overall puzzle. Well, why don't we pick up where you just uh, kind of left off? What are the challenges? First of all, that's really good to hear. You're an expert and you're watching us and you're saying, so people are kind of stepping up for, you know, the most part. Where are the gaps and the challenges that you see? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the challenges, like kind of, you know, what are the main challenges that that comes to my mind and that we're sort of thinking about um, is um, where we aren't seeing um, sort of whole buy-in to um, the protective behaviors that are recommended by public officials. Um, A lot of the differences in that space seem to be the result of partisanship. So, you know, we know that our society is sort of becoming more and more polarized in the United States over, you know, the past decade or what have you. And you really see some of that partisanship beginning to sort of trickle down into public health and into this this pandemic epidemic that we're dealing with so that um, sometimes the the positions of individual citizens, community members, and even you know state officials and federal officials seem like they're uh, very much driven by partisanship um, as opposed to maybe the best science that we have at the moment. So that's, that's a big area of concern. And the second one that maybe is kind of equal to that is, and you sort of kind of have mentioned this um, in, the, in the lead into the show, is um, there is a lot of bad information out there. There is a lot of misinformation. There are rumors. You know, some of this is, some of this bad information is well-intended. Some of it is, is actually purposefully misleading. Um, and so that part of the information ecosystem um, is definitely a problem. We've seen some consequences of some of that bad information. And so that's, that's another piece where we've got concerns and challenges um, currently. Okay, so some of the challenges involve partisanship. Some of them just involve getting the right information out there in the right way, it sounds like. Um, Let's unpack a lot of this uh, with Professor Brian Houston. Let me just say that you're listening to The Check-In on KBIA, our daily noontime forum on how we're getting through this crisis as a community. Today we're talking with Professor Brian Houston. He researches crisis and disaster communication all the time. Um, So we want to know what he thinks of this particular crisis that's unfolding around us and that we're dealing with in our various ways. What questions do you have for Professor Houston about social media or the various levels of government communications and uh, communications from our public officials? What are you thinking about the messages? Which ones do you find effective? Which ones are you following? And what do you think about our community response, our community resilience? Uh, Let us know. So, Brian, you mentioned, let me unpack a little bit on how the government and public officials handle these communications. There's a lot going on there. Um, What have you observed? Uh, You say that you have observed partisanship in these messages. What examples um, do you have for that? I think we're all aware of some of the the federal uh, back and forth that we've seen um, with our president's uh, press conferences and so forth and our nation's top infectious disease expert. you may or may not be seeing that on a local or statewide level. Where are you seeing the partisanship and where it's less than helpful? Yeah, I mean, it does certainly seem, you know, in this moment that the partisanship we're observing 
um, it's kind of being driven from the top down. So, um, you know, I, I think um, President Trump has certainly interjected um, kind of a healthy dose of politicization of public health recommendations into his messages. Um, you know, first, he's really been involved a lot in the public health messaging, which is kind of unusual. I mean, we certainly would expect, you know, the president of the United States to be saying things during a pandemic and an epidemic like this. But, you know, normally I think we would expect a lot of the public health recommendations really to be coming directly from, you know, the, the Centers for Disease Control, maybe the Surgeon General, I mean, from our health authorities. Um, but the president has interjected himself into this. And so that alone, I think that presence kind of begins to um, polarize some of the recommendations. Um, you can also turn to news media where um, maybe we have certain more conservative-leaning news outlets uh, downplaying the threat of coronavirus early on, um, you know, as opposed to maybe other news sources which were more kind of straight-line presenting the information that was coming from the World Health Organization and the CDC. So we're seeing some of the, the polarization in the news media. And then, and then we are then seeing it at the local level, right, where we're often seeing – um, you know, more conservative states and the governors of more conservative states or the mayors of kind of cities in more conservative areas kind of aligning themselves with the position that we're seeing from the president and maybe more conservative news media. And, and generally those positions that folks um, in, in that area are taking, you know, aren't, aren't quite as proactive in terms of um, the measures that need to be taken. You know, they're not sort of uh, issuing statewide stay-at-home orders, they're sort of falling short of that. And some of that is kind of aligning with the, the partisan perspective, it seems like we're seeing with this issue, as opposed to maybe just the straight-up science of um, what public health officials would be recommending. Interesting. So your the way you're putting it, uh, Brian, makes me realize that it can be sort of broken down uh, along states and party lines. Uh, does this, as someone who's looked at disaster communications and disaster response, you've seen th these types of responses before, but have you seen partisanship like this before? Is that par for the course, or is this a level of partisanship that's new? Yeah, it's, it's both. I mean, um, disasters, disaster response, disaster recovery typically gets quite politicized because it's often about resources, it's often about who needs what help, where and when. And so those judgments are, you know, they're inherently political and they get politicized quite quickly. I mean, we can think about sort of the response and recovery to Hurricane Katrina, Katrina as a, you know, an, an excellent case study of just how politicized these issues can become. And yet at the same time, this seems to be that occurring at an even quicker real-time, more instant um, example than we normally see. You usually don't see the, the, the partisanship and the politicization of these issues um, like piped right into the kind of emergency response recommendations of an event. Hmm. It might kind of be bubbling behind the scenes in the decisions, but here it's just being brought sort of front and center, and that is, I think, quite unusual.
All right. This is KBIA's live noontime community check-in. We're speaking with MU Professor Brian Houston about crisis communications. Where are government officials getting this right and wrong? How do we get information during this and any other crisis? And especially, how effective is the use of social media for you? We're going to get to that next here in a minute. We've got a few minutes left of this conversation, so you do have some time to join us. We have a line or two open if you want to join. Call us at 573-882-9136 with your questions or your comments about what you trust or not right now when it comes to information. Uh, Brian, one of the challenges, I think, in communicating coronavirus as it unfolds is that this is science that is um, uncertain, unknown, unfolding. Does that complicate the message that public officials are trying to get across to citizens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are I mean, this definitely is a a new virus that um, is not well understood. We're learning new things about it every day. And so that certainly makes the situation much more difficult for public health officials um, in terms of the decisions that they're making and the way they communicate those. And so, you know, we're seeing one of the things we always say in public health is like in terms of emergency communication, crisis communication, you know, you want to be consistent, you want to be empathetic, you want to be credible. And here it's sort of difficult to be consistent because some of the information is changing in real time as we learn more about what this virus is. And so, you were talking earlier on, Sebastian was talking about uh, the use of masks, right? Like that's, that's a recommendation that has sort of changed and sort of is changing yeah. as we understand the science of this virus and how masks work. And so in that environment of communicating, it's difficult for public health officials and it's difficult for us as citizens to really know what we should be doing. Um, uh, you know, the early signage uh, at the University of Missouri about how to stay safe was don't wear masks. They're not needed. Um, and now maybe that recommendation is changing. And so, um, you know, within the, within the course of just a week or two, um, you know, we have to print new signs because the messaging has, has changed. And so that's a really difficult situation for all of us to be in. Um, and so within that, um, public health and government officials have um, even more of an urgency to be as clear and consistent as they possibly can um, because it's a difficult situation to be in in terms of our understanding. Yes, and they, so they need to be clear, consistent, as you said, also urgent. Uh, it seems like there have was some discussion about uh, CDC and other public health officials not wanting to cause a panic. Uh, did you see that, that there was this balance between getting information across to the public but not wanting people to panic early? And may, were they too cautious, or do you think they struck that balance quite well? Yeah, I mean, that's often a concern. And, and actually, I mean, one of the things from the research that's encouraging is that, you know, people in disasters and crises really don't panic. So they're usually, you know, we don't observe panic responses in people. Now, you know, maybe you can think of um, going out to the grocery store and stockpiling goods as a, a bit of a panic. But, you mm -hmm. know, beyond those sorts of actions, usually in disasters, people um, remain pretty calm and are able to help themselves and each other's. Um, so, you know, getting back to your actual question, um, because this threat was evolving, I think it was challenging for a lot of officials to know how to classify the threat. 
Um, and so I think some of that uncertainty about what was actually going on seeped into their decision-making and probably prompted them to err on the side of being more conservative in, in describing this threat, which, you know, in hindsight um, probably wasn't exactly the right decision because I think that this thing has turned out to be um, quite a challenging situation. And if we would have had a stronger response early on, we might have been avoiding some of the, the worst that we're seeing in places like Detroit, New York, um, uh, New Orleans, and elsewhere. Okay. Uh, Brian, I can't let you go from this conversation without just asking you a little bit about social media. What have you been seeing in the information circulating on social media about COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, we're just, I don't know about you, but um, the amount of, of um, content on social media mm. about coronavirus is overwhelming. Um, it's easy for all of us to get sort of... Um, uh, overwhelmed by it and kind of consumed by it and have a difficulty turning it off. Um, I do think that the social media content is sort of good and bad. There is a lot of good information. There's a lot of good updates to get, give us a sense of what's going on. Um, social media provides us all a platform to stay connected when we're physically separated and, and, and share our experiences. Yes. So that's a lot of good. On the bad side, as I mentioned, a lot of rumors, a lot of misinformation, um, a lot of sort of um, anxious, uh, uh, hypervigilant focusing. So, we, you know, good and bad there. And I think we all have to kind of find our balance in this mix as we get through this crisis. Okay. Well, you, you just mentioned sort of the anxiety that can come from some of these, the, some of the bad information or less responsible information. Um, and I have to ask you, you've researched the effects of crisis uh, communications on kids. Uh, and I know you have a couple of kids at home. What do you, would you suggest that we do, what do you like to do to keep kids and teens and young people informed, but also mentally healthy during a time like this? I know that's a tall order for you, that question. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. If I had that one figured out, I'd be uh, parent of the year, right? I didn't warn uh, you that we'd have parenting questions. Go ahead. What do you think? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a couple of things. One is that, and this is good advice for all of us, right, that we need to strike some sort of balance in terms of how much we are using social media these days, particularly when almost all of our social media is about coronavirus, um, you know, how much we're being sort of consumed by it. So finding in ourselves and helping our children, finding uh, a balance there and other activities, right, like exercise and, you know, we've been playing games at night and, you know, finding some sort of break and balance is something we've got to be conscious of as parents so that, you know, our kids aren't getting sort of overwhelmed and consumed by this, and, and we aren't as well. And then I think the other thing is that um, a lot of times, so, so, so balance is good. At the same time, talking about it is good, right? So sometimes it's like, ah, we don't want to keep talking about this with our kids because we don't want to bring it up and we don't want to mm -hmm. further worry them. But they're thinking about this event just like we all are. Mm -hmm. They're processing it. They're trying to figure it out. So I mean, checking in about what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Have they seen anything they want to talk about? What's going on? You know, what are your friends doing? Those conversations um, are ultimately helpful and allow us to kind of process together as a family. Um, good for us as parents, good for them as kids. And so, you know, balancing these things and, and then checking in and talking um, 
are some good first steps and, and maybe as much as any of us can do, given how challenging the situation is. All right. Professor Brian Houston, you have great kids, so I appreciate the advice. And we are unbelievably out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, and, and please come back. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jana. Thanks, Brian. All right. So that's all for today's check-in. Thanks to Brian Houston for joining us today. Thank you for checking in. And for more conversation and information during crisis, join us for next Tuesday's show where we're talking with Columbia Missourian Executive Editor Ruby Bailey about covering and information during crisis. Um, and tomorrow we have Dr. Christelle Ilbudo, an MU epidemiologist who's leading response efforts. Join us for both of those upcoming conversations. Uh, and for more community and conversation over the airwaves, meet us back here tomorrow and every day at noon to check in. I'm Janet Saidi. Stay well and stay in touch.